blood-tingling tales, the complete series. All five volumes of blood-tingling tales bundled into one convenient collection. Only $2.99 or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Search for Blood Tingling Tales Complete Series on Amazon or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood, Maniac on the Loose. Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com, sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. And now, sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, and enjoy the ride. Night Terrors I'm a 32-year-old male. I live alone. I have horrible insomnia. I can't remember the last time I had a good night's sleep. I'm constantly fatigued, my body isn't getting the rest it needs, I'm always pale and weak, my immune system isn't functioning properly, and I keep picking up coughs and colds. I went to a doctor who specializes in sleeping disorders. He informed me that there is a new experimental drug available that has been helpful to others with similar conditions to mine. He warned that some people had severe side effects. I asked him for specifics, and he rattled through every precaution on the list. At this point, I was willing to try anything, so I agreed to a trial run. The medicine he gave me was a single pill with a time release that takes effect every 15 hours. One pill lasts for one week, so if there are side effects, they will last for the full week. I agreed to the risk and signed up. The amount of waivers I had to sign was about as thick as a book. My instructions were to write down any unusual experiences I had while taking the medication. After seven days, we would decide whether or not I should continue taking it. The following are the notes I took after each night during the week. Night 1 The time I took the pill was vitally important. It would dictate my sleeping cycle for the next week. I was told to take it exactly nine hours before I wanted to wake up. I preferred to be up by 7 a.m., so I took the pill at 10 p.m. I was warned that the pill would take effect immediately, so I made sure I was already in bed when I took it. They weren't kidding. I was out like a light. That was the soundest sleep I can ever remember having. I didn't wake up one time during the night. I was fully rested and full of energy. 
My face had color again. I felt strong. This was amazing. The only unusual thing was that when I woke up, my blanket, pillow, and sheets were all on the floor. I was lying on my bed, which had been completely stripped. I guess I tossed and turned a lot, but I don't remember that, and honestly, I don't care. If messing up my bed each night is the worst side effect I experience, I can live with that. Night 2 I made sure I was in the bed and covered up by 10pm, which is a good thing because as soon as the clock struck 10, I was out. Again, I slept like the dead. One of the odd things about the sleep I'm getting on this medication so far is that going to sleep and waking up is almost instantaneous. When you wake up from a normal full night of sleep, it may not feel like you've been lying there for 8 or 9 hours, but you know you've been asleep. With this stuff, I close my eyes and then open them and it's the next day. It's like blinking once and the night is gone. It's odd, but again, I feel completely rested and energized. This is the best I've felt in years. One weird thing happened though. I fell asleep on my bed, but woke up on the couch in my living room and the TV was on. When I went back to my bedroom, the bed was all made up. I don't remember getting up and moving to the couch. I don't remember turning on the TV. And I certainly don't remember making my bed. Night 3 I went to sleep last night in my bed. I woke up this morning in my car in my driveway. I had filled up my car with gas on the way home from work yesterday, so the gas gauge was full when I got home last night. Now the gas gauge reads three quarters full. Was I driving during the night? The gas gauge seems to indicate that I was, but I don't remember anything. Physically, I feel great, but this is starting to get scary. Night 4. I fell asleep in my bed. I didn't wake up in my bed. This time, I was in my car in my office parking lot, which is about 30 minutes from where I live. I sleep in boxers and nothing else, so I had to go back home and change and then drive back to work. I was a little late, but didn't get in trouble. Quite frankly, that is the least of my worries. Apparently, I have been driving around in my sleep. What if I got in an accident? What if I hit someone? If I did, would I even remember? I thoroughly checked out the front and rear of my car. There were no dents, scratches, or anything to indicate that I had hit anyone or anything. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. I'm starting to freak out. Night 5 I happen to have a pair of handcuffs. Yeah, I, I used to date a girl who was into that. I decided to use the handcuffs to cuff myself to my bedpost. I'm putting the key in the nightstand drawer. I'm hoping the complexity of getting the key out of the drawer, unlocking the cuffs, and taking them off of my wrist will discourage me from sleepwalking and sleep driving and whatever else I had been doing. It didn't work. This morning I woke up in a park. I've never been to this park before, I never even heard of it. 
turns out it was about one hour from my house. I woke up on the edge of a lake next to a gaggle of geese. My right hand was throbbing. I looked down at my knuckles and they were all reddened. I found my car in the parking lot. When I got in, I looked at myself in the mirror and I noticed I had slight bruising around my eye. Had I gotten into a fight? When I got home, the handcuffs and the key were neatly tucked away in the nightstand drawer. Obviously, that plan failed miserably. Night 6 I decided to try the handcuffs again, but this time I'd throw the key across the room so I couldn't reach it. I'd figure out how to get out of the cuffs in the morning. I closed my eyes and fell asleep. I opened my eyes and I was awake. I wasn't in my bed. I was lying on the front porch of a house I did not recognize. There was a hammer next to my hand. I started looking around to see if I could recognize my surroundings, but I didn't. What I did see was that someone had smashed in the front window of whoever's house this was. Did I do that? I got up in a panic and started looking for my car. It was not in the driveway. I, I, I started to get frantic and, and started running down the sidewalk of this suburban street while only wearing boxers. Finally, I spotted my parked car at the end of the block. Turns out I was in a town called Vernon Valley. I know of the town, but have never been here before. It's about 45 minutes from where I live. I drove like a madman to get home. Once there, I checked myself over thoroughly. I had no new wounds and my car was dent and scratch free, so that was good news. I went into my bedroom to see how I got out of the cuffs. My bed was in a shambles. I had torn the bedpost apart to free myself. I then apparently walked over, got the key from the floor, and undid the cuffs. As was the case yesterday, the cuffs and key were placed neatly back in the bedstand drawer. Night 7 Drastic times call for drastic measures. I was reluctant to get any of my friends involved in this. The less anyone knew, the better, but I needed help. I have a buddy who works in the mailroom that we all affectionately refer to as Blaze. He's a stoner. He's always high and extremely laid back. I installed a deadbolt lock on the outside of my bathroom. I asked Blaze to come by and lock me in. He was fine with it. He came over, locked me in the bathroom, and left. No questions asked. I had put a bunch of blankets in the bathtub. I laid in the tub, hoped for the best, and closed my eyes. Oddly enough, I woke up in bed. Problem was, it wasn't my bed. I rose up and immediately started gazing around the room, trying to decipher where I was. I had never seen this room before. It was a large bedroom. I, I was in a king-sized bed. There were family portraits on the wall of a husband, wife, and two adolescent kids. None of these people were familiar to me in the least. Then I recognized that I was gripping something in my hand. I looked down. It was a butcher knife and it was covered in blood. 
Holy shit, did I kill someone? I got up and started racing through the house mortified that I might walk into a room and find a slaughtered family. Fortunately, every room was empty and neat. It appeared that the family was not home. I found my car in the driveway, I raced back home. My bathroom door was in splinters. I had destroyed it to get out. I don't know whose house that was. I don't know whose knife that was. I don't know whose blood that was. I don't know what happened. All I could do was hope for the best. Fortunately, that was the last night. I went back to the doctor for post-trial checkup. When he asked me how things went, I lied. I just said that the medicine didn't help much and I didn't want to try it any further. He asked me if there were any side effects. I told him no. He seemed pleased by this and explained the following. Some people have reported bizarre side effects such as waking up in strange places with no memory of how they got there. And apparently the medicine makes some people extremely violent. I'm glad to hear none of this was an issue for you because, evidently, those particular side effects can continue for several months. Creepy phone calls. Police warning. My name is Phyllis. This happened to me in the mid-1970s when I was 14. Back in those days, communication was basic. There were no cell phones or computers. The primary way to get in touch with anyone was through a landline telephone. I lived in the northern suburbs of Chicago and was babysitting for a family that lived in the next town over. It was getting late and I had already put the kids to bed. My plan was to relax and watch TV until their parents got home. I happened to be watching a scary movie, so I startled when the phone rang. The person on the other end of the phone had a deep voice and spoke with authority. This is Officer Reed with the police department. Can you tell me your name, please? Phyllis? Phyllis, I don't want to alarm you but there has been an escape from the Brookfield Mental Institution. The patient is considered armed and dangerous and was spotted in your neighborhood. I'm contacting every person on your street and instructing everyone to keep their doors and windows locked. Do not answer the door for anyone you do not know. I have more calls to make right now, but I'll check in with you a little later. The call frightened me so much that I started to shiver, but I did as the officer said and locked up the house tight. I checked the kids. They were tucked in their beds, sleeping peacefully, so I went back down to the living room and waited. About 15 minutes later, the phone rang again. I answered, and it was Officer Reed. Has anyone knocked on your door since we last spoke? I told him no. Did you lock all of the doors and windows like I told you to? I confirmed with him that I did. The patient was spotted snooping around on your front porch. We have officers on the way to your location right now. 
Stay where you are, and you'll be safe. But do not open that door. He told me to stay close by the phone and that he'd call me right back. He was going to check on the latest reports. After I hung up the phone, I started walking toward the front window to look outside. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anybody out there. Before I could even reach the window, the phone rang. I picked it up. Once again, it was Officer Reed. He sounded alarmed. Phyllis, I want you to listen to me very carefully and do exactly what I tell you. Understand? Yes. The neighbor across the street spotted the escaped mental patient in one of the upstairs windows of the house you are in. He is in the house with you right now. Remain calm, open the front door, and go directly to your neighbor's house across the street. Hang up the phone and go now. I did exactly as I was told. I hurried to the front door, flung it open, and ran as fast as I could across the street to the neighbor's house. Just before I reached the neighbor's front door, a horde of police cars skidded onto the scene. One of the officers jumped out of his car, grabbed me, and pulled me behind his vehicle. The other officers rushed into the neighbor's house. I could hear a ruckus inside. There was a lot of yelling and the sounds of things banging. Clearly, there was a major struggle going on inside that house. After a few minutes, the police came out. They had a tall man in handcuffs and were ushering him toward one of the police vehicles. The tall man's shirt was spattered with blood. Later, I found out that the escaped mental patient had broken into the neighbor's house and murdered them. Apparently, he could see me through the living room window of the house I was babysitting in and had been watching me. He saw the name and address of the phone on the mailbox and was able to find the phone number in the phone book. Then he started calling me and posing as a police officer in an attempt to get me to come to the house across the street where he was waiting for me. I'm not sure what tipped off the police that he was in the neighbor's house, but had they not shown up when they did, I would have knocked on that door and he would have answered. God only knows what the escaped mental patient would have done to me. Creepy phone calls. 911. I'm a 57-year-old female and I'm a 911 dispatch operator. I've been doing this job for quite some time, and I've experienced a lot of strange calls over the years. But the strangest call I ever received happened recently. It had been a quiet night before that call came in. On the other end of the line was a woman. She was frantic, screaming, and crying hysterically. The following is the transcript of the entire call. 911, what's your emergency? Somebody help me! Please help me! Uh, calm down, ma'am. Please tell me what is wrong. My son! He's trying to kill me! He has an axe! What is your address, ma'am? 376 Harrison Avenue, please hurry! Units are on the way. What, where are you right now? I'm in the upstairs bathroom! Help me! He's breaking down the door with the axe! Stay calm. The police will be there soon. 
How old is your son? He's 17. Is there anybody else in the house? He killed my husband. He killed him with the axe. He's in the bathroom. He's going to kill me. No. 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 Hello? Ma'am, are you there? End of transcript. A few minutes later, I was radioed by one of the dispatched officers. He seemed extremely confused as he asked me to verify the address. I told him the address was 376 Harrison Avenue. The officer explained to me that the house appeared to be long since abandoned. He described it as being in shambles. Most of the windows were broken, portions of the foundation were visibly sagging, and the house was empty. The officer walked through the entire house and did a thorough going over. There was no electricity and no telephone lines. There was no sign of anyone having been there that night. As a matter of fact, it was evident that nobody had lived in the decrepit structure for decades. I checked with the switchboard to see if the trace revealed the address of the caller. They confirmed the address of 376 Harrison Avenue. I wasn't sure if there was some kind of malfunction or if this was a sick, twisted joke. The next few days after that call, there was an investigation to find out who had placed that call and where they were now. The investigation came up empty. Later that week, I did some digging around to find out who the last people who resided at 376 Harrison Avenue were. I couldn't believe what I found. The last family that lived there was Bob and Judy Ferguson and their son Ken. In 1991, Ken murdered his father in the living room with an axe. His mother attempted to escape harm by locking herself in an upstairs bathroom, but her son chopped through the door and murdered her too. Nobody had lived in the house since. As it turns out, the 20-year anniversary of the murders was the very night I received that call. The Vasectomy I never wanted to have kids, so when I was 25 years old, I decided to get a vasectomy. The decision was easy for me. I know myself. I know what I want and what I don't want. I felt very strongly about it and knew I would never, ever change my mind or regret my decision. So I went to see a urologist. I told him of my desire to get a vasectomy. I explained to him that I was of sound mind and body and never wanted to have kids. To my surprise, he said no. He explained that since I was only 25, not married and didn't have any kids, he wasn't comfortable performing the procedure out of fear that one day I may change my mind. He didn't have any problem charging me for the visit, though. I thought it was odd that he wouldn't do it. I mean, it was my body. I was an adult. 
I was perfectly capable of making the decision. So I went to another urologist. He gave me an examination and then promptly told me that he would not do the vasectomy. I couldn't believe it. I asked him why. He said the same thing. He thought I was too young. It didn't make sense to me. I was old enough to join the military, to vote, to smoke, to drink, to get married, but not old enough to get a vasectomy? What kind of bizarre world was this? Oh, but he charged me for the visit. I was starting to feel like I was getting scammed. So I called a third urologist. This time, I asked over the phone if he would be willing to give me a vasectomy. The nurse I spoke to wouldn't give me a yes or no. She said I had to see the doctor before he would make that decision. So I rolled the dice again. This time I didn't get an exam. The doctor just sat at his desk and talked to me. I told him I wanted a vasectomy. He told me no. Same reason, too young, I might change my mind. I pleaded with him. I assured him I would never change my mind. I told him I would sign papers declaring that I wanted this procedure without question. The answer was still no. I was fuming. When the nurse handed me a bill for the visit, I blew my top and started raving like a madman. Take this bill and shove it up your ass. That sawbones could have told me over the phone that he wouldn't do a vasectomy. But no, no, he had to make me come all the way out here so that he could tell me in person and charge me for a visit. What kind of a con are you people running here? You suck. You all suck. I could see that the nurse was calling security, so I left. I was through venting anyway. As I marched down the corridor toward the parking lot, I heard someone behind me. Psst. I stopped and turned. There was a thin man in his late fifties with slicked back hair standing near the restrooms. Psst. He looked around discreetly to make sure no one else was around and then motioned for me to come over to him. I walked to him and asked him what he wanted. I saw you lose your temper in the doctor's office. The doc wouldn't give you a vasectomy, huh? No, he wouldn't. How many have denied you so far? Three. He shook his head and seemed to feel my pain. It's bullshit. They should do what you want. But I know somebody who can help you. I was intrigued. You know of a doctor who will give me a vasectomy? The thin man nodded. Yeah, he's retired, but he still does procedures. You just have to pay him in cash. At first I was skeptical. How do I know this isn't just some regular Joe trying to pull one over on me? No one is getting close to my jewels unless I'm certain they're a real doctor and know what they're doing. He was understanding. I don't blame you, kid. He took a business card out of his jacket pocket and handed it to me. The card read Dr. Robert Burnham, M.D., and had an address and phone number. Do some research. Give him a call. 
talk to him. And what do you get out of it? Finder's fee. It was starting to sound more feasible to me. And this guy can do a vasectomy. Vasectomies are a cinch. This guy has done thousands of them. He can probably do it blindfolded. When I got home, I did as the thin man suggested and did a little research on Dr. Burnham. From everything I could tell, this guy was on the up and up. He had a stellar medical career and only recently retired. I made an appointment and talked to him. He was short and had frizzy gray hair. He was extremely energetic and had a little bit of a fun kookiness to him, but he was legit. More importantly, he was willing to do the procedure. He gave me the number of his nurse and she made an appointment for me. The building I was sent to was an old hospital that was still functioning. The nurse had told me not to check in with anybody, but instead to take the elevator to the basement. I had been expecting the basement to be empty, dark, and dingy. I thought the procedure would be taking place in some secretive mad scientist's lab. But the basement was well lit and modern. I passed by medical workers in the hall on my way to the room. The room was small, but it was clearly a surgical room. Had I not known any better, I would never have guessed that this was some clandestine black market procedure. The nurse took me through the basic preparations, and I wasn't lying on the table for more than a few minutes before Dr. Burnham arrived. He was in a jolly mood. He came into the room doing a slight dancing shuffle and singing a song. He was full of vigor and exuding positive energy. Okay, man, here we go. He flipped the switch on a radio and started singing along with the songs as he began the procedure. The doctor was jovial and talkative when he wasn't singing. He was chit-chatting with the nurse about a variety of light topics. At one point, I guess he was doing cauterization because I could see smoke rising from my nether regions. I was slightly alarmed and asked if that was smoke I was seeing. The doctor chuckled. <laughs> You're smoking, man! You're smoking! If nothing else, this doctor was very cocky. That's not a play on words. A vasectomy is a fairly quick procedure, but this one seemed to be taking a lot longer than I expected. I was about to ask why it was taking as long as it was when they started wrapping things up. You're all set. He was still full of jovial energy as he took off his gloves and picked up a clipboard and started flipping through the papers on it. He started jotting some information down on one of the pages and then froze. He stood staring at the page for a long while. The smile dropped from his face. I could see his positive energy drain from his entire body. He motioned for the nurse to come to him. Is this correct? The nurse stepped by his side and looked closer at something on the paperwork that he was pointing to. After she read it, she gasped and covered her mouth. Their faces were full of confusion and horror. My body swelled with anxiety. What? What, what, what is it? 
They were looking back and forth at each other with terrified expressions as they tried to figure out how to explain to me what was happening. The suspense was killing me. I couldn't take it anymore. Just tell me. Just, just tell me. The doctor took a deep breath and stepped closer to me. I'm sorry to inform you that there was a mishap with your paperwork. That didn't help me. Oh, wait, what, what does that mean? What are you talking about? He was hesitant, but continued. I had the paperwork for a different patient. He took another deep breath. What I'm trying to tell you is that I performed the wrong operation on you. I couldn't believe what I was hearing and demanded to know what they did to me. What kind of operation did you perform on me? He didn't want to tell me, but knew he had to. He looked at his nurse for a moment, and then back at me and finally answered, A sex change operation. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen on. We'll see you soon. Very soon.